We're moving through the Gospel of John. Today we're going to look at John chapter 7. And I think I would simply like to read, uh, read verses 37 through 44. John chapter 7, 37 to 44. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can, the Spirit, how can Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand upon him. This is God's word. On the last and greatest day of the feast, he stood up and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Streams of living water will flow from within him. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles is a seven or eight day feast in Jerusalem. And those of you who were here last week might remember that Jesus knew that there were people at the feast who were looking for him to seize him and to kill him. And yet, there is a, a message on Jesus' heart that's so important that fills him that he lifts up his voice and he cries. You see, he doesn't just say, this isn't a lecture, this isn't a three-point sermon. It says, on the last and greatest day, he said in a loud voice, he cried out, now, what would be so important, what message would be so important that he would risk his life in such a, uh, in such a dangerous position and such a dangerous situation to speak it? The message goes like this. The Feast of the Tabernacles was an annual feast in which the people of God, uh, the Israelites, they took uh, remembrance, they took recollection of their years of wandering in the wilderness before they got to their promised land. And, and what they did during those eight days was they, they did a number of rituals to remind themselves about how God had provided for them in wilderness. Therefore, uh, for example, many of the people for that seven or eight days, and this happened in the, in the fall, the autumn, they would live outdoors in lean-tos, in huts, in, uh, to remind themselves how God took care of them when they were living in tents, when they had no permanent homes. And another thing they did, and this is the significant one that Jesus fixes on, the other thing that they did was every day the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and draw water and put it in a golden pitcher, and they would walk in a procession to the temple, and the people would go along and they would sing Isaiah 12, uh, with joy will we draw water from the wells of salvation. And then at the altar, they would pour it out every day. Why? Because the Feast of the Tabernacles 
was reminding them of the time in which they all lived in tabernacles, in tents, in the wilderness, and how one at one time, in the wilderness, God provided water from a rock. There was a time in which they were thirsty, and Moses struck a rock with uh, the rod of God and outflowed the water so that their lives were saved. And as Jesus is watching this every day, this, this re-depiction of the water from the rock, finally on the last day, he has to speak out. He has to scream because something's been building in him, something that has been burning in him like a furnace, and it's ready to explode. And he talks about the water. And he says, here's what I have to tell you. I know who the real rock is, and I know what it means to have the real provision, and I know what the real water is. Come to me, and living water will flow out from you. Now, what he is saying is something that we cannot, uh, boy, we, we better not misunderstand it here. Listen to the importance of this. What is the heart of biblical religion? What is Christianity ultimately? Is it a, a lot of right doctrines? Is it a lot of wonderful feelings? Is it a lot of, uh, uh, is it a social vision for the world? Is it, a, uh, is it a pattern of ethical behavior and upright living? Of course, of course it's all those things. But primarily, first of all, the essence of Christianity is direct experience of God. God's life blood, God's stuff, God's substance, His Spirit penetrating you. That's what makes biblical religion different. That's what makes historic Protestant Christianity different from other brands. Direct, immediate connection with the very lifeblood, the substance, the stuff of God. Uh, I know it's going to be, listen, I realize that we live in New York City where people are so empty that uh, people can make an idol out of experience. And I know that our feelings are not things that we can always listen to, and we can never, uh, uh, for example, follow our feelings when, they take, when it takes us against the truth of God. And yet, listen, here's a Baptist minister, Charles Spurgeon, who I love to uh, quote so often. Spurgeon, one point, says this, some of us know what it is to be too happy to live. Are you in that club? The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight for we could endure no more and if God had not veiled his glory and his love a bit we would have died for joy you know I know the danger I know the danger of making experience into an idol I know the danger of feelings carrying you away but I want to ask you a question do you know what he's talking about. Have you had anything like what he's talking about? Do you read that and you say, is this guy in the same religion I'm in? What makes biblical religion different from other kinds of religion is this. 2 Peter 1, verse 4, we have been made partakers of the divine nature, the Spirit of God, the stuff of God, the lifeblood, the substance of God, penetrates direct contact, not contact through a priest, not contact through a sacrament, not something general. There's plenty of churches that will say, listen, listen, uh, th this needing this infusion of the Spirit from above, this born-again stuff, this conversion stuff, look, just get out there and live a life of justice and compassion 
And uh, that will please God. And the Bible says, nonsense. Ethical behavior is of no help unless you're quickened by the Spirit of God. Direct personal contact with him. That is the essence of true religion. That's the essence of Christianity. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The gift of the Spirit. Please do not underestimate, therefore, the importance of what Jesus is saying. There's religions of formality and there's religions of reality. And I know that in any service that I preach at today, any service, that there are people sitting alongside of each other who are in both camps. Do you have the gift of the Spirit? Do you know the gift of the Spirit? Do you know this kind of religion? Now listen, let's take a look at this gift, and there's three things Jesus tells us about it. One, he tells us how the gift is actually prepared, uh, how, how God prepares it, how God procures it for us. And secondly, he tells us how the gift is received. But then thirdly, he'll tell us how the gift affects us. How do you know if you have it? What will it look like? What, what, what will it be like if you have it? How it's prepared, how it's received, and how it works itself out in the effects in our lives. Look, how it's prepared. This very cryptic statement, which we've got to explore for a moment, it's right here. See? Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Now, I, I don't want you to misunderstand again the uh, import or the impact of this remarkable claim. Up to now, it says, because Jesus hadn't been glorified, and in the book of John, Jesus' moment of being glorified is his death. That's why when Jesus is about to die, he puts his arms out here in, in the book of John and says, now will I be glorified. It's the day of his death. Not until he dies has the Spirit been given. That's a pretty remarkable statement. What we're looking at is a presence of God issue. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit and the presence of God are the same thing. So, for example, whenever uh, we talk about Gideon or Samson or David or one of these great heroes, the Spirit of God descending on that person to give him power for great feats and deeds, we're also told, and God was with him. And the hand of the Lord was with him. The presence of God and the Holy Spirit are the same. There's, a, there's that wonderful, uh, to, prove it, to prove it, there's that wonderful prayer that many of you know, uh, famous prayer of confession, Psalm 51, where David, in verse 6, says, Cast me not away from thy presence, thy face. Panim. Don't take me away from your presence, your face. The word presence is the Hebrew word face, the panim. Cast me not away from thy presence and... Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Same thing. When Moses is speaking to God on the mountain, and God says, look, you guys can go to the mountain, you guys can go to Canaan, that's fine, but I'm not going with you. I'll help you from afar, I'll, that sort of thing, but I am not going to go with you. And Moses says, if you don't go with us in your presence, if your presence go not with us, send us not hence. And so what does God finally say? Yes, I will. I'll put my presence, my Holy Spirit, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And over the Ark of the Covenant, over the Ark of the Covenant, which is like the footstool of his throne, there was the, the Shekinah glory, the Holy Spirit. There was the cloud of his presence. There was his panim. 
And he says, Moses, that's the place where I'll speak to you face to face. That's the place where I'll meet with you. The presence of God and the Spirit of God are the same thing. Now, the thing that's so remarkable about this claim is that we know that, I just quoted for you, that the Spirit of God was very active in, in the uh, days before Jesus. Uh, the Spirit of God came on Samson and came on Gideon and came on uh, David and came on King Saul and came on uh, Moses and all of this. So how in the world could, David, could Jesus uh, say this, that the gift of the Spirit is about to be given? How could John, the apostle, say this? And we have to realize what the claim is. It's a relative term, the word given. The only possible explanation is that Jesus is saying, you know how the Spirit of God came upon the people in the Old Testament? You haven't seen nothing yet. What I have in store for you compared to what they had, is so much greater that we can talk about the Spirit of God virtually not even being here. I mean, see, it's a relative turn. It's a figure of speech. You can talk about a team. But if your, team, if your football team loses 54 to nothing, the, uh, the, the, the sports writer might say they didn't even show up. You see, what does that mean? It doesn't mean they weren't there. It just means the performance of the other team was so great, so much greater in comparison, that you could say that the other team, the losing team, wasn't even there. How else do you explain the fact that when Jesus says, you know John the Baptist, he was a great one. John the Baptist, yes. He says, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 11, in all of the history of the world up to now, John the Baptist is greater than all the prophets. He's greater than anyone who's ever been born of a woman. Greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than anyone. And then he says, and I say to you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's, that's the same statement. How could he say that? What he's saying is, the presence of God, the power of God, the reality of the Spirit of God, that I will bring as a result of my death, that I will be giving to you when you come to me, is so far beyond what was given to the great heroes of ancient times, so that even the least in my kingdom, even the least in my church, even the least in my band will be greater than them. Look, I don't exactly know what it means either. Don't look at me and say, well, explain that. All I know is I would like, I would, misery likes company. I would like you to be as convicted about this as I. How do we get away with making excuses for the mediocrity that characterizes our lives? How do we get away with that in light of this? How do we get away with, with excusing the, the tiny expectations? How do we get away with excusing the fact that we're always cowed under our problems and under our fears? Some of you can get away with it. You can say, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not, but what about the rest of us? Well, somebody says this. I still don't get it. How could, this, how could God be more present? Isn't God present everywhere? Doesn't the Bible say that God is present everywhere? So how can you talk about the presence of God and about uh, Jesus saying, I'm going to give you more of the presence of God? Now, the answer is this. If you think about God as a gas, then, of course, his presence is sort of diffused in the room equally. You know, his molecules are, have, have, have spread out to, to fill the space. But if you realize that God is not just a spirit, but he's a person, then you realize that there's levels or degrees of presence. 
So for example, this week I had the opportunity to go listen to a man uh, speak who was uh, a, a three times uh, president of Switzerland and I'd, I'd heard of him before. Not real, uh, I wasn't real full of awareness of him, but I'd seen his picture and I'd heard his name and I'd heard of him. He's now in retirement or he's, he's no longer the president. So what happened was I went to this room where there were about 350 other people listening to him and on the way in I was greeted by him. I was received. I shook his hand. He said, hi. And so at that point I entered into his presence in a sense. I had barely known about him but now I saw really what he looked like and I saw his manner and I listened to what he said we should be doing about the, the, uh, uh, the, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe and, and it was fascinating and, and you could say for the first time I had a personal encounter with him. But if you asked me today, do you know him personally, I would say, well, I was ushered into his presence, I knew him in his presence, I met him, I heard him in his presence, I was in the same room with 350 other people, but I don't know him personally. Ah, but what if afterwards he says, oh, you out there, he, he whistled to me, and he says, I really need to ask what we should be doing with East Germany. I need to ask you that. And I want to tell you my plans, too. And he took me into a back room and he would sit down face to face, close up. And we began to talk personally. Then I could say, well, I know him because I'm up in his face. Now, you see, there's a difference. I was in his presence, but now I'm really in his presence. And in the same way, in the Old Testament, God put his face in his Shekinah glory presence in the Holy of Holies, did he not? And his presence went up. And yet, there was always a barrier. When Moses said, I want to see your face. You know, there's places where God, uh, where the Bible says Moses talked to God face to face. And yet we also see that that's, only, uh, that's another way of speaking relatively because when on the mountain in Exodus 33, Moses says, I want to see you face to face. God says, I can't. I'll show you my outskirts. I'll show you my, my suburbs, but I, you can't go downtown into my presence. And he, and he let him see the outskirts, and when he came down the mountain, he was, his face was so full of radiance and glory just by seeing the outskirts that they had to put a veil over his face because the people, the Israelites, couldn't even be in his presence, couldn't see Moses, couldn't be near him. And Moses just yearned. He said, but show me your glory. Let me get all the way in. Uh, you know, the people of God were able to come near. They were able to come into the court, but they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They couldn't get in, and that's the reason why the Bible is full of this kind of language. That's the reason why you have uh, Psalm 16, in which David says, In thy face, in thy panim, is fullness of joy, and thy right hands are pleasures forevermore. You see the yearning? I want to get in. When will we get in? When Jacob wrestled with God, in Genesis 33, and, it's a, and it was at night, and when the day was about to break, God turned to him and said, the day is coming, you can't see my face, and he left. And, God, and Jacob called that place Peniel, the face of God. Paniel, see, the face of El, Elohim, the face of God. And all he was, he was so excited because he said, I got that close, and I'm alive. How do we get in? How can we get all the way in? And the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us and we beheld His glory. 
At 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine into our hearts to show us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes to Nathanael and says, Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael says, Wow, how did you see me there? You're clairvoyant. You're, that's a miracle. You must be really somebody. And Jesus says, You think that's something? You will see angels ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And he's referring to Jacob, who wrestled with God and who saw the stairway to heaven. And he says, Nathaniel, you think that's something? I'm Peniel. You think that's something? I'm the stairway to heaven. You think a little miracle is great? You've seen nothing yet. I can take you right downtown into the glory of God. I can bring, I can bring his presence into your life. I'm the way to flood your life with the presence of God. And that is what has been promised. That's what it means when we say the Spirit has been given. Oh, of course the Spirit has been operating before, but now look at the possibilities. The least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, the Bible tells us not only that that gift is coming, but how it's pro procured for us. How is it procured? This way. It's procured because Jesus died. He was glorified. When Jesus Christ says, you, if you come to me, you will be like the rock in the wilderness out of which comes the flowing of the living water, Jesus is referring to us, he is referring to us back to Exodus 17 and the great story of the smiting of the rock. Remember what happened there? You know, God had been providing for the Israelites in the wilderness, and he, uh, he took care of them in so many ways, but when they got thirsty, they rebelled. And they turned around and they blamed God. And they said, we don't like the way in which you're managing our lives. Does that sound familiar? And what they decided to do, because they were mad at God, and this is what a lot of us do, because they were mad at God, they tried to kill somebody else. They tried to kill Moses, the, the closest authority figure they could lay their hands on. Because they were mad at God, they just they hated the authority figure, and they accused him. They lodged a, a, a suit, and they accused him of mismanagement, and they wanted to kill him. What does God do? God comes to Moses and says, Moses, take the elders and the rod of God and go up to the big rock. Now, if you're reading this, you've got to be figuring, now, nah, I know what's going to happen. You see, they're accusing Moses of mismanagement. They want to execute him. But God has accused the people of rebellion, and they deserve to be executed. And the elders are witnesses in trials, and the rod of God is always, the rod is always the symbol of punishment and judgment. And so we figure, I know what's going to happen. They want to put Moses on trial, but they're going to be put on trial themselves. But when we get to the rock, God says, and shocks everybody, God says, Moses, I will stand before you on the rock. And then put the elders around, and then take the rod of God and hit it. Hit it. The presence of God dwelling on the rock, that sacred thing that no one's allowed to touch or see, hit it. Yes, hit it. Moses doesn't get it. Nobody gets it. All we know is that Moses lifts the rod of God when God stands on the rock and brings the rod down on him. And after the, after the stroke, out comes the water and the people are saved. And they see, literally, of course, Moses can't strike into the Shekinah glory of God. He wasn't able to literally strike God, but we see what God is saying. God is saying, someday... 
somebody's got to be punished for the cosmic stupidity of the human race. Someday somebody has got to be punished for this rebellion. And I'm going to come down and I will stand in the dock. And I will make myself vulnerable and I will take the stroke. And because I take the stroke in your place, you will be able to get the blessings. You will be able to get the rewards. Do you see the wonder of this? Here we are. What are we doing? We're like the people of Israel. When things go wrong, we get, you know, there's God with our lives in, our, in his hands. And you know, you know what my, I tell you what my life is like, and I think a parable of your life too. We spend all of our lives reaching up, trying to grab that life out of his hands and saying, give it to me. I don't like the way you're running it. Give it back. And God says, that kind of cosmic stupidity, that rebellion needs to be punished, I'll take it. And don't you see, therefore, the reason? It's not until Jesus was glorified, until the day that he stood and took the blow. What does it mean that we could become rocks from which fountains of water flow? The answer is only if we take the blow. And we only take the blow if you believe in Jesus because then you've taken the blow in him. You've been crucified. You've died in him. You've had the thorns. You've had the nails in your hands. God treats you as if you'd been through it all. Because he was glorified, we get the blessing. It's not, you see, the great thing about it is God doesn't come and say, he doesn't turn us all into little Indiana Joneses and say, now this is the quest for the fountain of youth. And what I'll do is I'll give you the treasure map. Here it is. Here's the treasure map. There's many ordeals. There's many tests. But if you do all this and if you summons up all your courage and if you're kind of lucky and if you really work hard and you pass all the tests, you can have the water of life. Instead, the Christian religion goes like this. Jesus is your Indiana Jones. You see, He has been through the quest. He has been through the ordeal. He's passed every test. He doesn't say, go and drink. Come on. He says, there, there's the treasure map. Go there and drink. He says, come and drink. Come to me. I've done it for you. That's why Paul says, do you think you received the Spirit of God through the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's received. It's a gift. It's been prepared for you. The Spirit has not been given until he's glorified, but he's been glorified, and now you can come. And now, we've already talked pretty much about what it means to receive the gift, let me, let me just point this out. Jesus says, if you want to receive this gift, you have to thirst and you have to come and believe. The wonderful thing about thirsting is that it's something that comes out again and again in the Bible. Uh, you know, in, in Revelation 22, we're told that, that at the end of all time, the city of God will come out of heaven, and the city of God is a radiant place where the glory of God makes the sun obsolete. And coming down from the throne of God is the river of life. And the river of life feeds the tree of life. And the tree of life bears fruit and leaves that will heal the nations. The tree of life. The healing of the nations. The water of life. We hardly know what all these wonderful things mean. It means that all the decay in your heart and the decay in our families and the decay in, in the human psyche and the decay of relationships and the decay of society, it will all be healed. And then Jesus says... And excluded from the city will be the murderers and the practicers of, of magic and occult and the fornicators and the, uh, and the heretics. They'll be excluded. 
So now my question is, who gets in? Well, you say it only stands to reason. If murderers and fornicators and uh, the occult uh, you know, magicians and heretics, if they're the ones who are excluded, well, who gets in? Well, the orthodox, the moral, the religious, the upstanding citizens. That's not what he says. In Revelation 22, Jesus gets up at the end of the book and says, anyone who thirsts, come and take of the water of life and drink freely. You see, it's not the moral, but the thirsty that get in. Do you know the difference between the moral and the thirsty? I'll tell you what a moral person is like. A moral person is saying, look, I've sinned, but I've accomplished a lot. Let me into the city of God. Give me to drink. The way you can tell the difference between a moral person and a thirsty person is the moral person is always complaining that God owes me. God, he's always saying, she's always saying, my life isn't going the way it ought to go. God, I've done a lot for you. I don't understand why things turn out the way they have. That's the language of the heart of a moral person. Jesus says that's not the kind of person that goes in. It's a thirsty person that goes in. That's why Jesus can say to the uh, Pharisees, the prostitutes and the pimps get into the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because they come thirsty. Don't you see, the demo you see how democratic it is? What is a thirsty person? A thirsty person is someone who doesn't have anything. A thirsty person who's just willing to admit the absence of something. It's not something substantial. It's an absence of something. It's a crying out. Who gets excluded? The people who won't admit the emptiness. There is a standard. The standard is to see that you can't live up to the standard. Do you have any desire for him? Do you have any weariness of soul? Do you have any going out of your heart toward this? That's thirst. You can come and receive. Okay, lastly, what happens if this gets into your life. What does the gift of the Spirit really do? You're supposed to think of it as water, so let me just suggest a couple of things about water before we close. First of all, water renews. Water revives. If you're thirsty, you're about to die, and you can die from thirst. Water comes in and renews and gives life, and it quenches longings. When I read Romans 5, 5, where it says, by the Spirit of God, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. I read that and I say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. The mark of the Spirit of God is it turns ideas into thirst-quenching realities. How do you know whether or not the Spirit of God is in your life? Think about the love of God. A lot of you, many of you believe that God's a loving God. But does the love of God become a reality to you? I'll tell you what the real work of the Spirit is. You hear a lot of stuff about God's, uh, the fullness of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit, and that, those are fine. They're all fine. They, I believe in them all. But running through them all is this main ministry. The main ministry of the Spirit of God is a spotlight ministry on Christ. Jesus says in Romans 16, He will take of mine, the Spirit of God will come to you and will take of mine and declare it to you. I know what you're going to think. The Spirit of God primarily is a preacher. He declares. He glorifies. Have you ever been in a dark room before a spotlight comes on? If you're in a dark room in a theater or something and a spotlight comes on and hits a particular figure up there, you see nothing else. Before the spotlight hit, you could sort of make out other kinds of uh, forms, but when the spotlight hits, that one person just dazzles your eyes. You can see nothing else. You can't see a background. You can't see the spotlight itself. You can just see that person. 
That person becomes glorious in your eyes. The way you can tell that the Spirit of God is working in your life is that the Spirit of God is doing that to Jesus. Taking what Jesus is doing to you, what Jesus is to you, what Jesus is, and glorifying it. Jesus comes to you and says, I'm your divine lover. I'm your king, your true king. I'm your savior. I'm your shepherd, your guide, your friend. I'm your life. I'm your hope. I'm the author and finisher of your faith. I'm the Lord of your personal history. I'm, in, I'm all these things to you. I'm, I'm your road to, your, to the fulfillment of your craziest dreams, and I'm the prize at the end of the road. I'm all of these things to you. Here's how you know that the Spirit of God is working. When those things become so glorious to you that you can't see anything else, it overwhelms everything else, let me be real practical. The love of God under the influence of the Spirit is burned in so that love of God becomes a thirst-quenching reality. When the love of God is so real to you that it overwhelms the rejection around you, the Spirit of God is working. When it overwhelms you and it captures your heart, so no matter what other people say, you feel loved. You can take criticism. You don't have to fish for affirmation anymore. You don't have to stick around only people who like you. You're free. Why? Because the love of God stopped being a concept and it became a thirst-quenching reality. Or what about the wisdom of God? Do you believe in the wisdom of God? Oh, yes, I believe God's wise. Then you won't worry. See, when the Spirit of God glorifies, makes the wisdom of God big and glorious to you, fills your vision with it, so that it just captures your heart. And the wisdom of God looks greater than your wisdom, and it's your wisdom that's telling you to be scared because a lot of things are going to happen out there, and if they don't happen just right, everything is going to go wrong. When the wisdom of God has turned from a concept by the Spirit into something big with glory, that's the spotlight ministry. I read a true story about a minister in the last century who was in a country where the army was hostile to the gospel. And he got up to preach outdoors, and a soldier came up, took out a gun, and said, don't you dare. And the minister looked at the soldier and said, sir, you do your duty, and I will do my duty. And he began to preach. Now, how could a man have that kind of courage? Simple. Why be scared before a private when you've just gone before the king of the universe, looked him straight in the face for an hour this morning, hmm? and could go to him because you know through Christ that king of the universe is really your father. Here is somebody who had access, not just a concept of the love of God, not just a concept of the wisdom of God, but logic on fire. You know where courage comes from? It comes from saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God does this, and if God is this, and if God is this, and if Jesus is this to me, what the heck am I afraid about? That's logic on fire. That's the work of the Spirit. Is that happening in your life? Secondly, the water cleanses. The Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. That means he has a very sensitive nose. It means that when he comes into your life, you will also find that little pockets of pride and of selfishness, of self-pity, of bias, uh, of, of dishonesty, all lots of things that before you could live with, you can't live with anymore. There's a lot of people that talk about how the, how the Spirit is renewing their heart and giving them great experiences of glory, but their lives aren't changing. And if you can look around yourself and you have any friends, ask them, am I less worried than I used to be? Am I less 
uh, self-pitying than I used to be? Am I more, uh, uh, do I have more integrity than I used to have? Am I more loving and approachable than I used to be? You know, am I changing? And if you're not changing, the spirit is not having, is not doing his work. Thirdly, water flows. It has a direction. In this case, the water flows out. A real Christian, a person who has the gift of the spirit, has become a fountain of water for other people. You've become a rock. You were smitten in Christ, and now all sorts of people can quench their thirst at you. And the question is, if the Spirit of God's working in your life, are you a fountain for people, or are you a drain on people? Do the people around you feel sucked dry, or do they feel, huh? Do they feel like you are enhancing them, or do you feel like you are depleting them? That's the question. Now listen, Christian friends, if you've got the gift of the Spirit, and yet the things we're talking about are not happening in your life, what do you do about it? You know, it's one thing to get a gift of skis. If somebody gave me, I've never skied in my life, if somebody gave me the gift of skis, I'd say, isn't that wonderful? I've got the gift of skis. It's another thing to fly with them. You've had a gift like that. Are you flying with it? Well, what do I do about it? You say, don't forget, the Spirit of God is not a gas. You don't get filled with the Spirit by getting more gallons of Him. The Spirit of God is a person. God is a person. How would you work on a relationship? Here's somebody over there that you said, well, I would love it if that person would want to marry me. Well, how would you work on it? You'd spend time. You'd find out ways to please. You'd study. You'd open your heart. You'd make commitments. That's how you get close to somebody. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the person. To be filled with love, especially for Jesus, the one he spotlights. If you want this kind of power in your life, there is no three or four easy steps. I can't go laying hands on you and give you some kind of magic charge from heaven. You have got to come to me, Jesus says. Come to him and do personal dealing. That's where the gift comes from. And if there's anybody here who realizes, I've never come to him. My religion is a morality religion. Are you the kind of person that when you come to a church and you hear people getting up and saying, God is teaching me this, God is comforting me, God is getting me through things, do you ever do you get grumpy and say, how do they know so much they think they understand how God, how do they know that sort of thing? I try to be a good person, I believe the basic creed, I, I come and do, how can they talk as if God's personally dealing with them? That's a very bad sign, my dear friends. It means you've got a religion of formality, not a religion of reality. And the Spirit of God is not working in your life at all. Have you got... Do you, are you willing to make Jesus your rock? Then you will become a fountain. Are you willing to say, Jesus took the stroke that I should have taken? Then you will become a fountain of life. Are you ready to say that? Do that now. Come to him. All you need is thirst. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. Most of us don't have it. And you can receive the gift of the Spirit. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we, uh, we take up the offering, help us to see that we're here to give you ourselves. Enable us, we ask it. Those of us who are your, your children, we pray that you would just enable us to, to give ourselves to you in a new way and help us to see that the Spirit is someone who is personal. And this is not abstract, but personal power. Enable us to strengthen our personal relationship with you so we can know the experience 
of having rivers of water flowing out from us. Father, if there's anyone here who needs to see that you were their rock, that your son Jesus Christ took the blow, enable them to give themselves to you in that way, that they might know the renewing, cleansing, flowing power of the river of God. And now we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.